You are freer than you think. It's like the ultimate form of freedom. You expound upon that freedom to develop on this planet. True freedom comes from within. It's the ability. Thinking to myself, I can help you or I can destroy you. Man, as a two-time felon, I work really hard and I've been a, I've been a life learner. When things are feeling tough, let yourself be surprised. The world favors risk-taking. Welcome. Welcome. Welcome to the Freedom Pact. Welcome back to the Freedom Pact podcast and today on the show I am joined by Dr. Gad Saad and in today's episode Dr. Gad Saad and I are going to discuss his rules for living a happy life, his reaction to Sam Harris and his relationship with the intellectual dark web, his thoughts on the re-education of Jordan Peterson, his prediction for the 2024 US election and so much more. But before we get into all that, I just want to let you guys know that today's episode is sponsored by Vibe. Yes, you've heard me talk about Vibe before. If you listen to this podcast, you know that I use Vibe every single morning for a quick, tasty, nutritious breakfast. When I'm working on the podcast alongside all of my other commitments, it keeps me full right through till lunchtime. It eliminates all of the thinking and I know I'm hitting my nutritional goals. Even when I'm busy, like I know all of you guys are, I won't compromise on my nutrition. As I know, it fuels me and it aids me to create the quality content that you guys deserve. And this nutritionally complete meal shake of Vibes has 29 grams of protein, 26 vitamins and minerals, complex carbs, essential fats, added ingredients like probiotics and nootropics to promote a healthy gut and brain. Guys, I use Vibe every single day morning to make sure I'm hitting my nutritional goals with none of the added time constraints of putting together a complete breakfast. Now, any of you guys listening that want to join me and try out some of Vibe's products, you can get a 15% discount with the code FREEDOM on their website at www.vibe.co.uk or vibe.com.au and it's the code FREEDOM for 15% off. Now, back to today's episode with Dr. Gadsad. Joining me on the Freedom Pact podcast today is Professor Gadsad. You may know him as the best-selling author of The Parasitic Mind and his brand new book, The Sad Truth About Happiness, Eight Secrets for Leading the Good Life. Gad, welcome to the Freedom Pact podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Cheers. So the first question I'd love to ask you about this topic is for a lot of people, they may think about happiness as something that they don't have a lot of control over. So my question is, to what extent are we the architects of our own happiness? And what are the exceptions? Right. So uh, the ancient Greeks, I briefly talk about the fact that, so to your question, the, 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 the earliest of the ancient Greeks thought that happiness was within the dominion of the gods and so you you know you were allotted either happiness or not and that was completely out of your control and then later uh philosophers from the ancient greek tradition thought that otherwise no we we are the architects of our happiness to put it in the context of today's language or science about 50% of our differences in happiness scores is due to our genes. Some of us are born with sunny dispositions, others are not. But the good news is that that leaves 
50 cent, 50% up for grabs, right? So even if I'm born with a sunnier disposition than you, if I adopt certain decisions or adopt certain mindsets that are detrimental to happiness, whereas you don't, then you may end up summiting Mount Happiness, you know, quicker than I will. So it's like most things in life, it is an inextricable mix of our genes and our environments. As I said, about 50-50. What are exceptions to that? Well, I mean, of course, if, you know, in every possible way, the, the, your life is filled with misery because you were abused as a child and then you grew up and then you were... For, you know, so there are ways by which it might be difficult for one to get out of their unhappiness because the reality of what they've had to face through no control of their own is so grave. But even in those circumstances, so I grew up, uh, and I think we might talk about this later, but I'll preempt it now by saying that, you know, I grew up in a difficult childhood in the Lebanese civil war. And so you might argue, well, then that has doomed me to, you know, to a life of existential misery because of the difficulties that I faced as a child. Well, to the contrary, I think that that those you know, experiences in my childhood have allowed me to have a better appreciation for life because I am standing here talking to you. I've overcome that. And so even when we are dealt some very, very difficult cards, there are ways to get out of it. That was something that I loved in the book was this idea of existential gratitude. And you mentioned it there, but I would love to sort of pull on that thread and get you to speak on, you know, the experiences of, of your family, uh, escaping the Lebanese civil war and how a tragedy like that can shape your happiness today. Right. So, so exactly that, you know, for the, for the listeners and viewers who may not be familiar, we, I was born in Lebanon, grew up there till the age of 11. Uh, we are Lebanese Jews. So it became very difficult to be Jewish in, in the middle East in general. And in Lebanon, once the civil war broke out, because it was very much of a sectarian uh, civil war. And so there weren't too many militia roadblocks that you were going to clear if you were Jewish. And so, you know, death awaited you around every corner. It was an incredibly brutal civil war. Most civil wars are judged against the backdrop of the Lebanese civil war brutality. And so, yes, it was very difficult, but, you know, every time that now I'm down on myself because, oh my God, I've got so much pressure. I've got to go on this media tour and I've got this and I've got that. Then I'll stop and say, wait a second, you, you surely you can't be whining about the fact that people want to talk to you about a book on happiness, uh, given the reality, you know, think about the miracle of how you escaped the civil war. Think about the miracle of my parents were kidnapped on a subsequent return trip to Lebanon and uh, some very bad things were done to them. Uh, uh, this is in 1980. So about f uh, five years after we had emigrated out of Lebanon. So when I contextualize whatever is worrying me on a given day and making me feel gloomy and blue against the backdrop of those difficulties, then I can immediately, uh, you know, snap out of it. Right. Uh, and I give actually two great since we're on the topic of existential gratitude, I give uh, two stories at the end of the book that really perfectly capture this point. Not These are not my stories of, of other individuals. Maybe I'll briefly recount them. The first one is uh, arguably one of the most incredible guests that I've ever had on my own show, uh, who is not a very well-known person, but his story is you know, profound. 
he spent 29 years in prison for a murder that he was eventually exonerated of. Uh, and yet when I was talking to him on the show, I didn't sense any sense of anger, vengefulness, vindictiveness, a sense of revenge. And so in the show, I said, you know, how is it possible? His name is David McCallum. How is it possible for you to be so well-adjusted after someone stole thir- you know, almost 30 years of your life from you? I mean, you you must be the reincarnation of Buddha. I mean, you, you're a much better man than I am because I, you know, I would want to, you know, burn the world down in a sense of revenge and vindictiveness. And then he answered me, which exactly speaks to our point about existential gratitude. He said, well, you know, I have a, a sister who who's been stricken with cerebral palsy. She's been bedridden for you know a very long time, and yet she finds the ability to smile and so on. And so viewed against her lot in life, it wasn't so bad whatever I went through. Well, I mean, that's incredible. You could be that charitable, existentially charitable when 29 years you spent in prison uh, for a murder you didn't commit. So I think it was he went in when he was 17, maybe. Uh, so that's story one. The second story is uh, of what, what I call the happy homeless guy. Uh, this is a gentleman that I was a visiting professor at University of California, Irvine, for a few years, many years ago. And uh, at one point, I was working on some project at a cafe, and I had a whole bunch of books laying around at the cafe. And a gentleman comes up to me and says, oh, wow, you're, what are these, you know, I'm very interested in these books. Uh, you know, what do you do? So on. So we, we struck up a conversation. He turned out to be someone who was pursuing a PhD at University of California, Irvine, studying the ecosystem of the homeless. And he had immersed himself within the homeless community, although he came himself from a, a wealthy, I think, Persian family. Fast forward about 10 years later, he ends up through various reasons becoming himself homeless and living out of his car. He finished his PhD. Uh, he was living out of his car and someone had tracked him down. I actually referenced this in the book. Someone had tracked him down and had asked him, you know, so are you happy? Are you unhappy? And he said, what, what do I have? What are the reasons for me to be unhappy? Number one, I have a lot, a car, a library card to the Newport beach public library where I can go and feed my mind. Number two, I can go to the gym and work on my making sure that my body is healthy. So I've got all the reasons to be happy. This is a guy who's, who had become homeless and was living in his car. And so again, uh, even when we are faced with incredibly difficult situations, like the two stories that I told you and my story in my childhood, we can somehow find a way to find existential gratitude. Yeah. And I mean, for me, in my personal experience, um, I can relate in terms of my grandfather fled a, a war-torn Poland. And that's why I, I live in Wales today, completely different um, environment. So, and, and learning about his past and that story, it does give me a, a real deep sense of gratitude. But for people out there who may not have any personal examples they can relate to, would you suggest that they go out and seek materials like Man's Search for Meaning by Viktor Frankl or expose themselves to similar stories? Uh, of course. Uh, you know, uh, w- one of the reasons why I ended up writing the book, as I explained at the start of the book, is, you know, if you would have asked me three years ago when The Parasitic Mind, my last book, had come out, so what's your next book going to be on? I wouldn't I wouldn't have told you that my next book was going to be about happiness. It was really a serendipitous thing that happened, which is part of the magic of life. 
because people would write. To me. So there were two two fundamental reasons. Number one, people would write to me and say, "Hey, what's your secret, Professor Saad, to always being even though you're dealing with difficult topics and you know the culture wars and all kinds of nastiness, you always seem to be playful and joking around, and there's always kind of a twinkle in your eye. What's your secret?" So that was one. Number two, uh, people would. Whenever I would post something that seemed to be prescriptive in nature, let's say I'm offering some unsolicited advice, which is typically not what I've done. You know, I'm I'm a descriptive academic. I describe human behavior. I, I was never really one to, you know, be kind of a self-help guy. You know, let me give you, here are seven tips to do X, Y, Z. But then whenever I would post something like that, let's say, oh, here are the secrets to how I ended up losing tons of weight. That would be the stuff that would be most impactful to most people. And so I realized, well, wait a second, people are constantly asking me, why is it that you're happy? And they're particularly attracted whenever I post something that is prescriptive. Why don't I take a shot at writing a book? So to your original question, yes, there are all sorts of incredible material out there, whether it be Viktor Frankl or others that have written you know, profoundly powerful uh, treaties on, you know, how to live a good life. Uh, by the way, that was one of the things that was most daunting for me when I was thinking about writing this book, because, you know, of all topics that philosophers have written about, probably none has been as frequent as to write about the good life, not only the ancient Greeks, many different traditions. And so you're kind of intimidated at that point because you have to say, well, you know, am I going to add anything new to the, to the, to the mix? And, so, so the way that I positioned the book is, well, here's what's unique. My own story about how to navigate through happiness. No one else has written that. It's my story. And so I mix a lot of personal anecdotes with ancient wisdoms, backed up with contemporary science, put it together. Hopefully you have a, a good read. And for people out there who may see, you know, feel as though happiness is just something that, that comes and goes, it's just a feeling. I wonder if you could speak on... What link you found throughout the work you've done and the research behind this book between happiness and actual health? Right. Uh, so in the book, uh, in, er in one of the early chapters, I have a whole bunch of uh, determinants of happiness. How does personality affect happiness? How does religiosity affect happiness? How does your cultural setting affect happiness? And then to, to your question, one of the sections I have, a small section is on the links between health and happiness. And here, it's really an interesting phenomenon. It's it's what's called a feedback loop. And before I explain that, I'll use another example to explain what that means. Testosterone follows a feedback loop, meaning that it could serve both as an antecedent to something, something that comes before something, and it could be the outcome of something. So for example, as an antecedent, uh, people who are... Uh, who have higher testosterone levels are more likely to engage in risk-taking or, or to be more aggressive, okay? So that's an antecedent. Because my testosterones are higher, it predisposes me to do something. But testosterone is also an outcome variable. If, if I put, this is actually a study that I did with one of my former graduate students. If I put young men in a Porsche and I ask them to drive around the block or I put them in a beaten up old sedan in the former case when they are imbued with a status symbol their testosterone levels go up so that's an outcome measure right so so testosterone could both be an antecedent and an outcome variable well that's exactly the relationship between health and happiness right people who are healthy 
are more likely to engage, uh, people who are happy are more likely to engage in healthy behaviors. And then that also means that if I am happier, I end up being uh, he healthier. So, it, so there's a feedback loop that reinforces itself, right? Now, what is the mechanism by which happy people are healthier? There are several pathways, two of which are on average, happier people have lower cortisol levels. Cortisol levels is a measure of your stress response, you know, system. Uh, also, happier people are more likely to have lower inflammation markers. Inflammation markers are related to all sorts of negative consequences. So by simply being happier, there are downstream health effects. And as I said earlier, if I am happier, I'm more likely to engage in healthy behaviors. I'm more likely to exercise. I'm more likely to adopt a healthy eating routine. And so that feedback loop keeps reinforcing itself. One of the um, things that you really stress in the book in terms of leading a good life is the importance of choosing the right life partner. Um, this is something that I think for a lot of people, they end up choosing their life partner based on you know, just emotion rather than applying any logic to it. It's, it's, it is a very... I suppose, uncomfortable thing to do to, to sit down and really think about a relationship logically and what you're getting from it. But through the scope of happiness, what are the things that we should consider when choosing a life partner? Yes. So let's take an extreme example of how not to choose a life partner. And by the way, here I should distinguish between, so in, in evolutionary psychology, which is you know my main area of research, we, we distinguish between short-term mating and long-term mating precisely because it is recognized that some of the attributes that we may find uniquely attractive in a long-term partner may be exactly those that we're not looking for in a short-term partner. Sometimes they do assort, they are congruent, but other times they're not. <clears throat> but for, so, so for example, for, for a short-term liaison, the opposites attract maxim might work well. I may be uh, introverted and shy and sexually restrained. The prospective partner may be the exact opposite and therefore they might bring me out of my shell. And that complementarity leads to actually a, a great encounter, but it's short-term. For long-term happiness in our romantic unions, a marriage or whatever, then it's very much the maxim birds of a feather flock together. Now, so, But the question then begs to be asked, which is, but the sorting on which feathers, is it that we have to have the same eye color? Is it that we have to have the same hair color? And of course, that's, that's not the case. What we are assorting on are belief systems, foundational values, key, you know, life mindsets. Uh, and for those things, opposites do not attract. So let's take a very banal and obvious example. Let's suppose that one partner is incredibly rooted in their religious, in their faith. And the other person is a caustic, uh, you know, atheist. Well, that statistically speaking, that's going to put a lot of strain on the relationship. So we're already starting off on the wrong footing. Now we might be able to overcome it, but life is a, is a game of statistics, right? Uh, it, right. So, uh, 
non-smokers can still get lung cancer, but on average, boy, do you decrease your chances of having lung cancer if you don't smoke, right? Nothing is guaranteed. Life is about statistical vagaries. And so by simply ensuring that you, as you're deciding whether that person is your right mate, uh, do they share these foundational values with you, which is a cognitive mechanism to your point, it's not an emotional mechanism, then I can certainly increase the chances of me being happy. So my, my wife happens to be also Lebanese. I didn't set out to only, you know, uh, explore the possibility of marrying Lebanese women, but the fact that through serendipity, I met a Lebanese woman, it already, all other things equal, it increased the chances that we're going to uh, hopefully have a, a happy union because there are so many cultural elements to being Lebanese, to being from the Middle East, that maybe someone from Wales may not, you know, get. Uh, and so to the extent that you can try to find someone with whom you can assort on these foundational values, boy, are you increasing your chances of happiness. If anyone follows you on social media, they'll be aware of your football inability. Um, you know, you're, you're looking like uh, Lionel Messi playing for Inter, Inter Miami or at the- well, Oh the, my, oh the, my, I might, I might put that snippet <laughs> as the top thing in my CV because nothing else matters when I receive such a compliment. Thank you. Well, the way the football markets work, and I'm sure you'll get a few offers from Saudi Arabia these days, but um, <laughs> um, the, what I'm trying to get at you is you talk about the importance of play. Um, when we say play to adults, they may feel quite uncomfortable with that word. They may think that that, that's quite, that doesn't quite feel right, but why should play not be restricted to children? Oh, I love that question. Uh, many people think play is something that we grow out of, right? You're, you're born with your baby teeth, then there is an ontogenetic, a developmental mechanism, and then all my baby teeth fall out, new teeth come in, and now these are the teeth that I will have. And so for many people, play is a similar thing, right? I, it's normal for children to play, but then life is serious. Adults don't play. Nothing could be further from the truth. Now, I can answer that in, in several ways. I can answer it philosophically. I can answer it from an evolutionary perspective. Play from an evolutionary perspective. I mean, there are there are several adaptive reasons why animals, including humans, play. The most common idea is that play is the mechanism that allows us to practice evolutionarily relevant goals, right? So oftentimes when you look at predator and prey species, when they are juvenile and they're growing up, they will engage in these play behaviors to avoid, to evade a predator or to attack a, a prey. And so a lot of times, many of the play patterns that we engage in are actually, I mean, literally evolutionarily adaptive and relevant, right? But on a more, on a more philosophical level, play is an indelible part of our human nature. So in the same way that we need to go to the bathroom, we need to drink water, we need to eat food, th those are non-negotiables. I cannot survive for long if I don't instantiate those drives. Play is similar. And so much so that in the book, I discuss many incredibly dire situations where people still had a desperate need to play. And I'll mention two such examples. In the, going back to, you know, my, my reality in the Lebanese civil war, 
I remember when I would want to play. Remember, I was the war started when I was 10 and we left when I was 11. Uh, when I would want to go out to play, my parents, and this is in the middle of like this unbelievably brutal civil war where it's house to house fighting. My parents would tell me, you know, if you go outside, don't cross this particular imaginary line because then that would put you within the eyesight of the snipers who would then just blow your brains apart. And so even then, in a very flippant way, you know, my parents are telling me, go outside and play, but just don't cross that line. And and then I even tell a story. I, I quote a story many, many years later during the Syrian civil war that happened more recently where children, I mean, were telling almost the exact same story verbatim, right? It, you know, about going out and playing, but watching for the snipers. The, the even more dire example is when children were playing in concentration camps in the Holocaust. I mean, what could be more dire than that? And that yet people still had a desire to play. Now to make it, to link it to adulthood, science is a form of play. It's the highest form of play, right? Because what are you doing as a scientist? You're solving a puzzle. There is a million jigsaw puzzles called variables, some of which correlate with each other. Some of them cause one another. And my job as an academic is to try to find for whatever phenomenon I'm studying, which variable goes with which other variable in some meaningful relationship. Well, that's what you're doing when you're solving a puzzle with your 10-year-old son or daughter. You're finding which pieces, pieces fit together. And so we should never lose our uh, instinct to play. It, it protects us. It serves as a pressure valve protection against the nastiness of the world. So one of the reasons why I utilize humor and sarcasm and satire in, in a lot of my public engagement, well, first, it keeps me sane because the only way that you can deal with some of the craziness that you see being spread today is to mock it, to make fun of it. But also, it's a very, very powerful persuasion technique to use when you're trying to persuade. So mock an idea. That's why, by the way, dictators, they usually, the first ones that they want to kill are not the guys with the big muscles. It's the guys with the sharp tongues, because it's the guys with the sharp tongues that's that are a threat to my regime. It's not the guys with the big muscles. And so for all sorts of adaptive reasons, even in your old age, play. I love that. And as you were as you were talking about that, then it reminded me of um, a story, and it's, it's heavily disputed as to the extent of um, you know how, how true this is. But if anyone's read or watched um, All Quiet on the Western Front, they they talk about this story on Christmas Day, where the British and the German soldiers uh, lay down their weapons, and they actually they say they met in no man's land and had a game of football on wow. uh, on Christmas Day. And I just always think that's a really powerful image even if it isn't as true as that it's painted out in the movies in the box i just think it's a it's a beautiful uh, thing to think about indeed so what i'd love to speak to you about next is this idea of regret and this has been something that i've thought about a lot ever since i i interviewed um an author many years ago called Bronnie Ware who wrote a book called the five uh, regrets of the dying what are uh, the the tactics what is the approach that we should be using to minimizing future regret yes by the way i'm so glad that you mentioned her because i as you probably know 
if if you've gone in details through my book, I have a I actually quote her, uh, you know, the the five looming regrets of the dying because she was a palliative nurse, and she collected what were the regrets of people who were, I mean, literally on their deathbeds. Uh, and so be, before I answer the question, because that relates to anticipatory regret, uh, I was lucky enough to have as one of my professors in my PhD, uh, Thomas Gilovich, who is one of the, the pioneers in the study of psychology of regret and specifically the difference between two forms of regret regrets due to actions versus regrets due to inaction. So regret due to action would be, I regret that, you know, I was unfaithful to my spouse that led to the dissolution of my marriage. And I really regret that. So that, because I committed an action that resulted in something that I regret, whereas a regret due to inaction would be, you know, I really regret that I became a, an accountant because my dad was an accountant and his father was an accountant. And it seemed like a, a good stable job that would bring me money because in reality, I always wanted to be an artist. And here I sit now at the end of my career, my end of my life. And I really regret that I never pursued my authentic self, my authentic interests. And it turns out, as I explained in the book, and as Thomas Gilovich has shown in many of his papers, that over the long run, what we regret the most are the regrets due to inaction, right? It's the path that was not taken, which that's why I then related to existential authenticity, be authentic to who you truly are, which of course the ancient Greeks had already told us about when they espoused the Delphic maxim, know thyself. That's exactly what they're saying there, right? Okay, so now let's talk about the anticipatory regret. So you might think that regret is a non-beneficial emotion because, well, if you're sitting at the end of your life and regretting and, and obsessing and looming about something that you can't do anything about, what's what's the point of that? But of course, so two answers to that. Answer one is anticipatory regret, which I'll talk about in a sec. Answer two is that for many things, it's never too late. Uh, I can't become an NBA player today because I'm too old, I'm too short, I'm not good enough, and no amount of regret is going to change that reality but uh someone wants to to go back to university and they're in their 60s you can go back and i actually tell the story of someone who in their 60s began a bachelor's degree in their 70s did a master's degree and they finished their phd in their early 90s right uh so in any case but anticipatory regret which was the the, the impetus of or the genesis of your question this basically demonstrates that there are many contexts where, you know, uh, instantiating your regret calculus actually has benefits. So Jeff Bezos, when he was deciding whether to uh, leave his cushy, secure, high-paying executive job to start Amazon, which was a much riskier endeavor, he said that the reason why he ended up doing the Amazon uh, project is ex what we call in academic psychology, anticipatory regret. So basically he said, I want to anticipate what will happen in the future if I don't take that decision. And I'm sure that I will regret it. Therefore, I need to do it. So in that case, regret served a very 
beneficial purpose, which is it actually made him made a decision that until Elon Musk, I think, took him over, he made him the wealthiest person in the world. Not, by the way, not to imply that money is the route to, to happiness, which I also discuss in the book. So there are all sorts of ways by which being aware of the looming regret that I might face in the future, if I don't make the right decision now, could actually prove to be beneficial. Something that I've been dealing with thinking about lately is hate. And I think for myself, uh, I, I always thought that this comes with the territory. But for me, as, as this show has you know grown over the years and, and you know been shared in certain places, I knew there was always going to come with it um, reaction. And for yourself, you put yourself out there on social media, you've got many, many, many followers. Um, you know, you, you don't shy away from many topics or many questions. And I think for myself that when I'm, I've in the past, I've produced a piece of content and I've been really, really happy about it. I've come down from the interview. I've been smiling. I've published it. I'm really happy. And then, you know, you could get a hundred great comments and there could be one nasty comment and you could stew over that for a week or it could be in the back of your mind for the next 10 podcasts you do. And it is a tricky thing to navigate, but I'd love to ask you for someone who's really in the, in, in the public eye, what is Gad Sad's happiness approach to hate? <laughs> you know, look, uh, I'm, uh, I'm a human being, and so I'm not impervious to you know the the negative stuff that comes at you. Sometimes I'll I'll get pissed off. Uh, I mean, I'll just give you an example that this is the first time that is being shared because it only happened earlier today when I was at the cafe. I received an email from the uh, book review editor of a major uh, psychology journal in the United States, saying, "Hey, here's a a review." of your happiness book that was written by these two authors. Do you wish to rebut them? I'm like, uh oh, let's see what these, these folks said. And the review was a complete hit piece. Like it was, it was so removed from uh, what the point of the book was, what the timber of it was and so on. Uh, so that for a moment or two pisses me off. Uh, but then I'm able to contextualize that. So I'll give you another quick example uh, that recently happened. Uh, I was the, the day that the book was released, the, the happiness book was released on July 25th in, in North America. And so on that day, my, the first show, uh, was on the, on the books, the day of the book release was Joe Rogan, which makes sense because it's the biggest show in the world. Uh, you know, we're, we're good friends. I've been on a show many times and in our conversation, we covered all sorts of topics. Usually these conversations are three plus hours long. It's always done in good spirit. We're we're both happy. We're both smiling. And at one point, I was joking about some accents that I find uh, auditorily unappealing. And and what what brought this on, if I remember correctly, was the fact that he was saying that he had just come back from Greece, uh, and I had just come back with my family from Portugal. And and so I began by saying, oh, you know, the Portuguese accent, I'm not a really big fan of. Uh, it's and I bored here a joke from some comedian who said, "Oh, you know, when you speak Portuguese, it's as if you're having a permanent stroke uh, because of the way your mouth moves." Okay, haha, it's funny, whatever. And then I said, "Oh, one of the languages I speak is Hebrew, and Hebrew is violently ugly, right?" And then I said, "Oh, but I live in Montreal, Canada, uh, Quebec, which is French-speaking, 
uh, I said, oh, but when it comes to the French Canadian accent, oh, well, that's just an affront to human dignity. I said it with a smile, with a, with a twinkle in my eye. Uh, uh, the affront to human dignity line has become a gadism. It's a trademark running gag that I use whenever I'm trying to emphasize that I dislike something. So the Beatles are an affront to human dignity. Uh, U2 and Bono are an affront to human dignity. Anybody who doesn't love the artistry of Lionel Messi is an affront to human dignity. Anybody who likes Cristiano Ronaldo is an affront to human dignity. It's said completely in a jocular, innocent way. So some idiots from Quebec took the affront to human dignity, packaged it in an obnoxious, hateful way, and then, you know, triggered the entire society to come after me, public enemy number one. We have opened our doors to this immigrant, this ingrate who's now attacking us and so on. And for the next two weeks, you know, many articles were written you know, about me and the newspaper and the justice minister and the science and education minister, everybody was weighing in always against me, right? Which of course doesn't bode well for society when you are so fragile that a joke from someone who's lived in your country, by the way, I'm Francophone. I learned French before I learned English. So, you know, it's just, it's insane. It speaks to what I talked about in my previous book, The Parasitic Mind. So to answer your question in a very long-winded way, you, you're human, and so at one point, you th there is a moment where you react negatively, but then you always pull back and say, let's put this in a greater context. I've got a lovely wife who loves me, and I love her. I've got wonderful children. I can watch Lionel Messi tomorrow when he plays, whatever that means. I've got a great job. Knock on wood, I'm healthy. Who gives a damn what some idiots say? Let's apply this strategy, right? It's tough. But that's what you have to do. If you don't have a thick skin in this game, when you when you are <clears throat> as open about my position as I am, I would have committed suicide long ago. Which, by the way, it sounds I'm saying this flippantly. You may have heard recently of a tragic story that happened in Canada, in Ontario, where a principal who is himself a very progressive, woke guy, he had, had he's a principal who had... He's, I think 60, he was 60 years old, was because you're going to see he, he's no longer with us. He was asked to go to some mandatory training for diversity, inclusion, equity, where the, 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 the facilitator or whatever, the tutor or whatever, the instructor was talking about how Canada is a white supremacist country, endemic racist country and so on, which really is, I mean, could, nothing could be further from the truth, certainly not today. And so he very politely, in a not in a God, God sad way, not in a very frontal Middle Eastern way, in a very progressive, gentle way, said, well, you know, I'm not sure if Canada is systematically racist the way you're saying. It's I don't think it's nearly as bad as it has historically been in the U.S. So then he started getting so much blowback from the people in that group, which is a very small group ultimately. But his personhood was so fragile that regrettably he ended up taking his own life. Well, if I were to compare whatever he went through to what happened with me, with the, the accent story, then I should have jumped off a building long time ago because I mean, the amount of pressure, I mean, there were tons and tons of people writing to my university to have me fired. A 30 year professor with my record should be fired because I made a joke about an accent. 
People make jokes about the Welsh accent, the Irish accent, the Scottish accent within each other. It's insane, right? I mean, to be that fragile. So my <clears throat> my response to how to be happy in regards to hate, it's to recognize it, <clears throat> excuse me, recognize it, but then contextualize it within the greater whole. And when you do that, those idiots don't matter. Well, it's it's quite fitting that you you mentioned that there. Um, as people who watch this podcast know, sometimes, well, to my left, we hear there is a Beatles poster, but uh, oh, my it, happens goodness. To, it happens to be just off camera today. I, I don't want to say if I did that on purpose or not, but I did see it on your Twitter the other day. So uh, I'll leave I'm that. I'm triggered, to... <laughs> sir. I'm triggered. <laughs> well, um, there's every time we have a, a a big guest on the show, what we love to do is we like to put it out on our newsletter and, and let people contribute and, and, and let us know the things that they would love to, to hear them speak on. Uh, when we mentioned that uh, Professor Gadsad was coming on the show, we were hit with with many questions. And if we could, um, we have a little bit of time left. I'd love to try and get through uh, just a couple of these. Um, Let's do it. So this, I, I guess this carries on from the example you were just given there. Um, a lot of people are asking me to ask you for your reaction uh, to the Jordan Peterson versus the Canadian court uh, result that is uh, that is now come out. Yes. Uh, so for those of you who don't know, who, who weren't the, the originators of that question, let me just explain it. Uh, yeah, Jordan had, you know, put out some tweets that were viewed as hurtful and, and so on. And therefore, uh, because he is a clinical psychologist, and therefore he is under the auspices of the Ontario College of Psychologists who, you know, regulate your behavior in a nice Orwellian sense. They said, well, you know, those comments are not befitting of a clinical psychologist, even though he made those comments, not while he was a clinician in an, in an off, you know, in, a, in an interaction with a client, he did them as a private citizen on, you know, his Twitter account. They said, well, you need to go through now mandatory social media training. So a 60 year old man with his profile needs now to be re-educated, to be a, a better human being. And so the way that I handled that, by the way, I really, uh, and forgive me if it sounds like as though I'm tooting my horn, but but uh, that's not the point of what I'm about to say. The, the last thing I could have thought of doing was to take on Jordan Peterson's case when I was just mired myself in my own accent gate story. But because I'm authentic, because I'm a person who is deontologically driven, I defend these foundational principles. My brain doesn't work of, oh, I better keep quiet. So I doubled down. I looked for more trouble. And what did I do? I put out, if you go to my channel, uh, The Sad Truth, S-A-A-D, the current most recent clip is one where I satirically state, and by the way, the satire was so on point, if I may say, that many people didn't realize that it was satire until later in the clip. I said, I'm delighted to report that the Ontario College of Psychologists have chosen me as the tutor in, in Jordan Peterson's re-education lobotomy journey. And, uh, and so as I listed all of the, I think I listed 16 points that he had to internalize, I brought out the whip of self-disgust and I engaged in self-flagellation 
to demonstrate the importance of repentance and uh, uh, contriteness and so on. Well, so I, I'm answering that question by saying it's an utter load of to, to borrow. I don't know if it's the Scots or the Irish or the the British or British in general. It's a load of shite. I love that word. Uh, it is literally Orwellian because it makes no sense that in a free enlightened society, now I don't mean to imply that there are no professional orders that should regulate how you behave in the pursuit of your profession, right? So it, when I am in the classroom and I have my hat of a professor, there are certain things that I never say, never even broach because they're not within the purview of what I've been mandated to do as a professor in that particular class. I don't bring my other stuff into the classroom, okay? So that's part of my professional obligation. But on the other hand, when I'm walking around as a private citizen, I don't lose my right to express my opinions because I'm a professor any more than he loses his right to express his opinions because he's a clinical psychologist. Because then let's do the same thing with accountants. They have an order. Let's do the same thing with lawyers, right? So any profession that has an order that governs that profession should always be careful to never make a joke online and so on. That's insane. And it should not exist in a free and enlightened society. And how would you re-educate him? What would you what would you teach him? <laughs> uh sarcastically or truly? Well, sarcastically. Sarcastically. Well, I don't have the list in front of me, but I, I think I started off number one, he has to learn. He he can't abide by the antiquated old binary model of you know male and female. Some men menstruate, some men bear children, some women have nine-inch penises. Those are inviolable. You have to learn those things. Then I explained to him that you know Justin Trudeau is a fantastic, fearless leader. I yeah, I just went through all of the progressive bullshit, and I facetiously, sarcastically said those are the ones that he should uh, learn. I really, really highly recommend for people to go watch this clip because you know I do it. You know, I don't know if I'm going to get 100 views or I think now it's over 200,000 views. Yeah. I do it because it's just my authentic self. I'm pissed off at that stupidity. I do have a rather pointed sense of humor. And so I just open the camera. I bring out the the belt of self, uh, the whip of self-disgust and I go at it. Uh, but that's part of what we talked about earlier. Play, Right. I'm taking on a very, very serious topic, right? The Ontario College of Psychologists who are re-educating the, the, I call him the overlord of darkness, Jordan Peterson. That's a very, I mean, it's, it's a profoundly serious topic, but what better way to demonstrate the lunacy than through very, very spicy mockery? Another name, um, that ke that came up a few times from our audience, and and this is a man that we get asked about a lot. Um, I, I I've hosted Brett Weinstein, I think about five times now on this podcast over the years, and every time people ask me to ask him about his relationship with Sam Harris because there's there's a bit of confusion around this uh, about really what happened with the whole IDW fallout. I mean, there was a point of time where all these great minds were having all these great conversations everything felt interconnected and it felt like a really productive space but then 
there was a point in time where I think Sam uh, turned in his his IDW card and, you know, uh, things just sort of fell apart and relationships seemed to have collapsed. And Brett was telling me just a month ago that him him and Sam, once great friends, they, they don't talk anymore and that he would be open to a conversation with Sam, but he doesn't think that, that Sam is open to one himself. I just wonder what your relationship is is like with with sam now and and how you see really what happened with this all fallout of the idw right uh so sam and i uh were always very friendly we've communicated by email you know many times we we've met in person we've gone to dinner uh he's he he invited me uh to his show many years ago and so it's not it's not as though we were best friends, but we knew each other. We respected each other. We knew of each other's uh, positions on many things. And so, yeah, he's, he's a great guy. I mean, on 95% of things, uh, you know, I I would have been his, his big fan. Then I faced a bit of a conundrum. Uh, this, I'm answering my the question of my own relationship with Sam. And it really, it, it's truly is nothing personal. I, it's really important for all the, the folks out there to know it's, I don't have time to sit and, you know, do personal gossip stuff because there are bigger issues at play. So what are some of those issues? I have a personal code of conduct. Maybe it's just the Gatsad code of conduct. Maybe it's partly the Middle Eastern code of conduct where, you know, honor and shame are really important in my calculus, right? So uh, because Sam and I knew each other for many, many years, I bit my tongue as I saw him you know, taking positions that to me seemed quite insane uh, because I was driven by the code of conduct of don't go after your friends. Mm -hmm. But then that, the conundrum arose because then that was pitted against the deontological defense of truth, the, 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 you know, pathological need to be authentic. So then I thought, but Am I not then being inauthentic if I hold my tongue when someone, yes, whom I know, whom I like, who's a lovely guy, is espousing pure shite, okay? So then I started coming out of the woodwork, but I did it in a jocular way, right? So I would I would satirize some of Sam's positions. Now, I thought he might say, ha-ha, God, you got me, and we'd go back and forth and rib each other. He went a different route he first unfollowed me now does it matter to me do i stay up at night saying why sam why did you unfollow me no but that's a dishonorable act coming from someone from the middle east then he blocked me right now he could have easily said that then eventually he left twitter right now he could have easily said hey why don't you come on my show and let's hash out our differences or hey why don't i come on your show and let's hash out our differences so now let's talk about the issues that in my case, I know that with Sam and Brett, it was the COVID stuff, mm. but let's talk about a, a much broader set of issues that really pissed me off. Okay, let me explain now the important distinction between deontological ethics and consequentialist ethics, which I cover in The Parasitic Mind, my previous book. Deontological ethics are absolute truth. So if I say it is never okay to lie, that would be a deontological statement. A consequentialist statement would be, is it, uh, it's okay to lie if there is a greater goal that comes from it, uh, right? Uh, if you, I, I often joke, although 
It's true. If your spouse says, do I look fat in those jeans? Then put on your consequentialist hat really quickly and say, absolutely not. You've never looked more beautiful and therefore you will have a happy and long marriage. Okay. So for many, many things, we are all consequentialists and it makes perfect sense. But when it comes to inviolable principles that define the West and the greatness of the West, those are deontological by nature. They have to be. So for example, freedom of speech is a deontological principle. The second that you say, I believe in freedom of speech, but dot, 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 then you're an asshole. Okay. Now, freedom of speech is not absolute in the sense that you can't defame, you can't incite violence. But short of that, it should be an absolute deontological principle, meaning that I am a Jewish person who went through the Lebanese civil war. I support the right of Holocaust deniers to spew the most offensive and insulting thing possible, which is to deny the mass extermination of an entire people. In a free society, you have to tolerate assholes. Okay. So Sam comes along, you know, the guy who wrote a book on morality, you know, the guy who wrote a book about lying and how it's not good to lie. And then he said, oh, I'm all about freedom of speech, but surely not for Orange Himmler. That's my colorful way of saying Donald Trump. So yes, I completely support, well done, Jack Dorsey, the former CEO of Twitter, for taking away the sitting president of the United States because freedom of speech cannot be something that we promote for someone as dangerous as the hurling, to use his words, I'm maybe slightly, he, he's a he's a asteroid hurling towards earth. In that case, all bets are off. So that's the ontological violation number one. I believe in freedom of speech, but not for Donald Trump. Story number two. Oh, I'm all about presumption of innocence. Yes, yes, that's all good. But not for Brett Kavanaugh the guy who's going to become justice because we can't, I mean, yes, we don't have any concrete proof that he's a gang rapist that went up and down the Eastern seaboard of the United States, raping everybody in sight. We don't have any proof, but in his case, you know, this, this is a job interview for, to become justice minister. So we can't afford him the courtesy of presumption of innocence. Okay. Story two, story three. Oh, I completely believe in journalistic integrity and of telling the truth but not when it came to Hunter Biden's laptop, because in that case, it made perfect sense for the entire media and all social media platforms and governmental to try to suppress that story, because if they hadn't done that, then Donald Trump would have become president and we couldn't have had that. So in that case, it made perfect sense to suppress the story, which of course we now know was completely true, was not Russian disinformation, okay? And story four, which relates to Brett Weinstein and his COVID conflict with Sam. Sam went on, as you know, very famously on trigonometry and several times since, where he said, and here I'm gonna, even before I say what he said, I'm gonna use an Arabic expression translated in English, but it also exists in other cultures. If my grandmother had balls, we would have called her my grandfather. So here's Sam. If I hadn't been wrong about every single thing I said about COVID 
and had everything about COVID been the way I had said it would should come out, then I would have been right. So you see, I would have been right, right? So I'm I'm being facetious in how I say it, but it's literally that. Just you just have to go and watch it, right? So that to me is hubris. It's it's saying the reason why the seven deadly sins have pride as the number one of of the root of all seven deadly sins because all the other deadly sins stem from pride from self-love i will never admit to being wrong i'm speaking now as, as sam that pissed me off and so to me it has nothing to do with with sam as a person he, i'm sure he remains a lovely guy and Tomorrow, if he called me and said, hey, you know what? I actually listened to your points and I, I think you may be on something. Let's hash it out. I would say, let's do it. Now, all these idiots online speaking about hate, they like, oh, it's a personal thing. Gad is upset because his book didn't sell as much as Sam. Well, first of all, I don't know if that's true, but I, I mean, do you really think that that's who I am? Or do you think what I just explained to you is what the reason is? So to me, the reason why I went after Sam is because he is a person who has great ideas, who is respected in the intellectual ecosystem, and therefore it would be inauthentic for me to not attack his positions when I think those positions are worthy of attack. And I regret the fact that that may have affected, I don't want to say friendship because it's not as though you know we were hanging out with each other every Tuesday, but I don't like to have bad blood with people. I certainly in my heart, I hold no ill will towards Sam, but I think he has gone down the, uh, the abyss of infinite lunacy. Well, the final question I have uh, from a member of the audience before we tell these guys where they can get the book and we wrap this up, um, bit of a tough question and one that no one really likes to answer because it, there's so many dynamics at play um, this time around in, in with this upcoming election. What sort of things do you foresee playing out in this election? I mean, it's not just the case of a, a, a simple Trump-Biden like it was last time. There's so many other dynamics. There's, you know, the influence of a Robert Kennedy. There's Vivek. There's all these different dynamics interlocking. What things do you predict that we will see before the election? Wow. Wow, wow. It is a tough question. Uh, if, if I were able to prognosticate all these things, I would be a much wealthier man than I am. I'd be playing the stock market in a better way. Uh, I can only speculate here, of course. Of course. Uh, and by the way, for the people who are watching, I truly don't have a dog in this fight in that I'm Canadian. Yes, Canada is intimately linked to the US. US. So any positions I take is, doesn't come from political tribalism. I don't care either way. I just tell it like it is. Uh, look, uh, in an ideal world, it would be great if many of the policies of Donald Trump were the ones that were implemented. I'm speaking for myself in terms of which policies I support, but I do understand that Donald Trump comes with some baggage, personality baggage, that is difficult for many people to, to digest. Does that mean that Ron DeSantis could be all the policies of Trump without the negative baggage of Trump. I'm not sure because also Trump has a uh, an alluring personality in the following sense. He's funny. He's larger than life. Yes, of course, he's narcissistic and somewhat of an egomaniac, but that itself is something you want to watch, right? You're, you're, you're drawn to it. Uh, you may have other politicians who, who, who are much more, quote, presidential, 
and I understand that, but who are boring as as a doorknob, right? And so it's very hard to tell. No, I don't think that Vivek is going to somehow come out as the winner. Uh, I think it will be probably Trump. Uh, I'm not sure that Biden can actually run another one. I don't know how that would be possible. You know, his decline is, you know, is is increasing at an exponential rate. Can you can you cook it and scam it for him to stay more in the basement so that nobody sees him? I don't know if it's possible. So if I were to predict, I would say that pretty boy Gavin Newsom will likely be the uh, the the nominee on the Democrat side because regrettably, and here I'm going to use. Let me see if I could find. Oh, I don't have it here. Let's for a second. I'm going to use this prop as the. Uh, the cork of a wine bottle. There is an expression in Arabic that says, getting drunk simply by smelling the cork of the wine bottle. Now, what does that mean? It, it, in a very direct sense, it means that someone is of so, such weak con constituency that they don't actually need to drink the wine to get drunk. They just smell the cork and they're already drunk. But what does it mean in the current context? It, and this is something that I discuss in the former book, The Parasitic Mind. It means that most people, when they're voting for a candidate, don't actually do a deep dive into their policies. They couldn't really tell you one thing or another. They smell the cork of the wine bottle. Uh, Barack Obama is tall. He is lanky. He's got a radiant smile and a mellifluous voice. I'm in love. Anything that he says, even though every single word is a platitudinous load of bullshit, I'm I'm drunk by his beauty. Whereas on the other hand, Donald Trump is an ugly, vulgar ogre. Therefore, he's evil and he's a monster and he's Hitler. Why am I saying all this? Because I can easily conceive that if you put someone like Gavin Newsom against Donald Trump, who's got beautiful hair, who comes across as a GQ model, many people will be intoxicated by that cork. So I can't say who's going to win, but my feeling is that it'll certainly be Trump on the Republican side, and we'll see who makes it on the Democratic side. Well, I said earlier, you didn't shy away from any question. You've, you've proved it there. So thank you so much <laughs> for that. Well, let's let these guys know. For anyone listening now um, who is in America, the book will be out. By the time this full podcast goes out, it'll also be out in the UK. Please let everyone listening and watching where they can go and check out the sad truth about happiness and connect with you and your other work. Uh, thank you for asking this. Uh, so the sad truth about happiness, eight secrets for leading a good life, uh, should be available at bookstores. You can order it on Amazon UK. <clears throat> I think, <clears throat> excuse me, it comes out September 28th in the UK. Uh, if you want to connect with me, <clears throat> I'm on Twitter at Gad, G-A-D-S-A-A-D. Remember the sad truth about happiness is S-A-A-D. It's a play on the, the word, uh, I have a website, gadsad.com. I've got a podcast and YouTube channel called The Sad Truth, S-A-A-D. So there are all sorts of ways that you could connect. Uh, I try to read all of the emails that I receive, but regrettably, as my platform has gotten bigger, it has become more difficult to answer everybody. So you can also send me emails. There are all kinds of ways we can connect. Uh, so thank you for this opportunity. Amazing. I will link all that in the show notes below. And thank you so much again for coming on the show. It means uh, a lot to us. And good luck with the rest of your media tour. I'm sure there's plenty of podcasts to get through. And hopefully you can draw on some of that existential gratitude to get, to get through them all. <laughs>
Thank you so much. And congratulations. I think I've I've come once before on this show. when it Yes, was, it was with my co-host, Joe. Your co-host, it was much smaller and you're growing. So continued success to you. Clearly, you're doing you're doing well. Much Thank you so success. much, sir.